Hi, everyone. This is David Chen, and I'm here with... Stephen Tobolowsky. And we just wanted to let you know about our upcoming live shows in Boston and New York. In Boston, we'll be performing on February 27th at the Coolidge Corner Theater, and we'll be performing on February 28th at the Bell House in New York. You can find more details about those shows at Coolidge.org and at thebellhouseny.com. Again, that's Coolidge.org and at thebellhouseny.com. Stephen, are you uh, looking forward to these shows as much as I am? I am absolutely jumping, jumping for joy over this. Uh, yeah, especially after we had such a great reception in Boston and Seattle in recent months. We're really looking forward to these fun shows on February 27th and 28th at the Coolidge Corner Theater and at the Bell House in New York. We'll see you guys there. Sitting here in limbo But I know it won't be long Sitting here in limbo Like a bird without a song Hello everyone and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen, I'm the senior editor at SlashFilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played Dr. David Deutsch in the television series Work It... Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I was okay until you said David Deutsch. Yes, uh, a role yeah, we know. would all rather forget, I think. I, I don't know. Is, is, is uh, You know, when, when you do a sitcom, ordinarily the, the main characters get to perform on the set, on the stage in front of the live audience. And then depending on the uh, extra scenes, they do those in swing sets, which are not facing the audience, kind of in corners of the stage. The set for Dr. David Deutsch was so far away from the audience, I was actually behind behind the swing sets. So I could not see, I could not hear the audience. Uh, it's, it was almost like work. It was kind of like a dream yes. within a dream. I, I, I think uh, certainly the ratings seem to indicate that that's the case. <laughs> You're never going to let me. Here, that is, is going th- to be the new butt crack plumber, I could tell. Here is the timeline. Voice. Here is the timeline for the ABC original series Work It. The season premiere uh, debuted to catastrophic crit- critical <laughs> acclaim. And then you appeared on the second episode, and then the show was canceled. No, <laughs> so, I missed it by one episode. No, no, no. I'm saying you you were on the second episode. No, then, I know that's the problem. I mean, I could have actually been paid for being on Work It and have it not aired. I see. I see what you're saying. Yes, I, I, see. I could have escaped scot free. You could have escaped money for nothing and chicks for free. Indeed, indeed. Well, uh, fortunately, that ignominy is available for all to see. <laughs> Well, Stephen, enough of your amazing body of work. Let's talk about your f- actual physical body. Uh, this has been uh, a series of riveting stories about your heart surgery, and we have saw parts one and two already recorded and released to the public on the Tobolowsky Files. Now, I think we'd like to hear how the story wrapped up, Stephen. It would be my pleasure. Uh just to give you a little background, uh, you probably already know this, David, but I've always been naive in affairs of the heart. Most of what I knew about heart problems I learned from TV, not the Learning Channel, but on Sanford and Son. Red Fox would always grab his chest and stagger around the room, saying he thought the big one was coming. It was hilarious. It always brought a smile to my face. And watching some of the reruns of the show recently, I realized it probably wasn't an accurate depiction of a real medical emergency. But my introduction to heart problems was many, many years before on the TV show Lassie. It was one of the favorite shows I had when I was a child, and our whole family would gather around the TV set and watch episode after episode of a dog making life bearable for some ranchers. I was horrified one Sunday evening at the beginning of a new season when they started the show with Grandpa's funeral. What happened? I mean, he was fine at the end of last season. And I should mention, this was before the age in which I would have speculated the Gramps was trying to renegotiate his contract. In the story, Timmy was very upset. 
He asked his mother, June Lockhart, the question we were all asking, what happened to Gramps? June Lockhart sadly looked out at their dried-up California ranch property and said, Timmy, Gramps died of a heart attack. I had never heard of such a thing. It sounded horrible. I asked Mom and Dad what a heart attack was. Dad shook his head and said, It's bad. Mom got a little more specific and said, Steppy doors? Gramps was very old. Heart attacks happen to people when they are very, very old. Their hearts just stop working. Well, there was no sleep for me that night. I tossed and turned wondering if my heart was going to stop. That's when I, the monster, came to my rescue. He came out of my toy closet to talk to me. As it turned out, this was a very decent thing for him to do because one of the first things he told me was he no longer lived in my closet, but had moved to a nearby graveyard. I asked him if it was scary there. He said, not really. He said several of my friends were there, like Davy Crockett and Pochita the Cocker Spaniel. Pochita was the first dog I ever loved. She lived across the street from us at Mrs. Bybee's house. Mrs. Bybee was our babysitter. The summer, right after I had turned four, she went on a two-week vacation. When they came back, Mrs. Bybee walked across the street to tell us that while they were gone, Pachita died. I remember I began to cry and asked her what Pachita died of. Mrs. Bybee said, of a broken heart. A broken heart is a dangerous thing. I figured that's what got Gramps on Lassie. I, the monster, nodded and said Gramps was with him, too. I was comforted that all of my heroes had such a good friend and I to watch over them. They say that one of the greatest protections we have against anything is knowledge. Don't you believe it. Knowledge isn't all it's cracked up to be. It's just a pile of nails and a hammer. You still have to build the house. I had knowledge. I knew cholesterol was a bad thing. Now, I'm not patting myself on the back. It's not exactly a secret. It's everywhere. It's practically painted on the side of houses. There's a natural sifting process in the medical information in our society, and you can pretty much rest assured that a fact has gone through the entire digestive tract of America when it finally comes out as a commercial on the Golf Channel. Watching a skins game on any Sunday afternoon, you will be exposed to repeated graphics of blocked arteries alternating with commercials for pills to help you get an erection. It's actually a nice pairing. If one pill works, you may want to get the other one too. My issue was not identifying the problem, but in accepting a solution that didn't involve not eating fried chicken. I always thought I was a pretty healthy guy. I worked out regularly. I never ate too many unhealthy things except when I would be overcome with despair and have to eat an entire bag of Fritos. And yet, despite the best of my intentions, I ended up like so many men in their 50s. I had three arteries with significant blockages. One was 98% blocked. It was called the left circumflex, which is probably what caused the pressure I felt in my chest. Another was 75% blocked. This was the all-important left anterior descending. It's also known cheerfully as the widowmaker, probably because it notoriously displays few symptoms when it's blocked. That was what probably took down Gramps. I felt no pain. I had no outward signs. There was no Fred Sanford clutching of the chest. I just seemed to have less energy than usual. I didn't want to work out. I got winded easily. I preferred to sit rather than stand. And more significantly, I didn't care that any of these changes had happened. I just assumed they were the byproduct of apathy brought on by how bad movies had been lately. Now it was less than six weeks after my first symptom, and I was being wheeled from the ICU to the cardio ward where I could begin what the hospital called my recovery. Of course, the success of any recovery is always determined on how you define recovery. The surgeon said it would be three months. My brother told me it would be six months. But most importantly, the insurance company said it would be six days. You realize quickly that what is required to recover from open-heart surgery in six days is the determination to set the bar low enough. Most of the time, the hospital sets the bar at getting the patient up to the level of feeling like they've just been hit by a truck. 
And this isn't even as easy as it sounds. I consider my first real step on the road to recovery the removal of my catheter. The whole process was unpleasant and disgusting. Before I left the cardio ward, my ICU nurse, Ariel, lifted up my gown and took little steppy doors in her hand and said, let's get rid of this thing. I objected to her choice of words. She apologized for being too vague and told me to count to three. I opened my mouth to say one, and she pulled. She looked up at me and grinned wickedly and said, oh, I'm sorry. I said I would pull on three, didn't I? I thought it was revealing that modern medicine was using a strategy last used in a Mad Max movie. I still had a couple of three-foot-long tubes coming out of my chest to suction off something the hospital euphemistically called drainage into a bucket beside the bed. I made the mistake of taking a quick peek into the bucket. It made me recall the words of one of my therapists I went to many years ago. She told me that there were things inside of me I didn't want to face. I realized now she was right, and almost all of them were in that bucket. The hospital has any number of ways to make you lose your appetite. That didn't concern me because I didn't have any. Counting the fast before the surgery, I hadn't eaten anything in a couple of days, and I didn't feel like I need to start any time soon. I was doing just fine with my new best friend in the world, ice water. Oh, yeah. It hadn't lost any of its newfound charm. As one of the nurses poured me another cup and offered it to me in bed, I had an unexpected memory from when I was three. I looked up at my mother in the kitchen, drinking a cup of cold water from the fridge, telling her that water was the best-tasting thing in the world. Mom laughed and said she thought I really liked candy better. I obstinately shook my head and said, No, water. It tastes like candy to me. It only took me 57 years to arrive at the same conclusion I had when I was just out of diapers. I still had difficulty moving my arms and legs. The culprit, as far as I could tell, was the anesthetic and the operating table. The anesthetic stops everything. I was told later it was the same stuff used on me that Michael Jackson had after his last rehearsal. It paralyzes you, which is bad if you're a singer-dancer, but good if you're having open-heart surgery. The second culprit was the operating table itself. It was a narrow metal table that they tie you down to for six hours. At first, it sounded like you were just flying coach to Iceland. But from what I heard afterwards, it's a lot worse. You see, after they saw your sternum in half, they bend your shoulders back and tie them to the table for easy access. After surgery, what hurts isn't the incision, but your shoulders. And they even have a name for it, shoulder impingement syndrome. I knew that because when I complained about the terrible pain I was having to Anne, she went home and looked it up on the Internet, and I was thrilled. First of all, I was happy that my complaint had been dignified with a name. And not just any name, a syndrome. Now that was about as good as it gets. People take you far more seriously when you tell them you are suffering from a syndrome. Unfortunately, I was unable to claim the highest form of malady, and that is an ailment that's only known by its initials like Marza or HASP or the DTs. Using initials was out. Having shoulder impingement syndrome meant I would have to tell people I had cis, which sounds bad. I was wheeled into my new room. There were no surprises. It had a bed, a table, and a chair. I've noticed throughout my life that the layout of a hospital room has never changed. Considering that everything changes... And the time usually eliminates anything unnecessary, one has to assume that there's something fundamentally right in this setup. The bed is self-explanatory. The little table is necessary for pills and my little pitcher of water. But the chair is what always interested me. Walk past any empty hospital room. It's always there, beside the bed, waiting. The chair is for the other. The other is always a part of the room, because an illness has never suffered alone. While no one can truly understand the fears and pain of the person afflicted, neither can one understand the anguish of the one who has to wait and watch. The hospital room is the great uniter. 
It brings us together like nothing else can. It's the place where the limits of our courage are forced to meet the limits of our empathy. The result is no one leaves a hospital without a new respect for another day. I would argue it is the chair that is the catalyst. It's the presence of the other that transforms what would be simple misery into discovering the healing power of suffering. Mutual suffering can create an awareness outside of our own experience. When we have a window into the misery of others, it gives us an immediate opportunity to make their journey a little easier. Sharing a joke with Anne made her cry with blessed relief, and when she offered me a sip of water, it made her feel whole again, if only for a moment. My new nurses came into the room to greet me. Hello, you made it, Mr. Hughes. I had no idea what they were talking about, and then I remembered, oh yeah, Hughes was my new name for the hospital. My friend Richard advised me that it would be a smart thing to use an alias so I wouldn't show up on television on one of those Hollywood expose shows. Kevin, my male nurse, was very pleasant. How do you like the room, Mr. Hughes? See, you have a window. Kevin pointed to a semi-transparent section of wall that faced a parking structure. I said, it's very nice, Kevin. That's what we like to hear, Mr. Hughes. In fact, we like to think that this place is not really a hospital, but more like a luxury hotel. Yes, I said, a hotel where they take your blood and the guests are always dying. Kevin said, no, 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 Mr. Hughes, we don't like that kind of talk. In our job, we always try to focus on the positive. That's good, Kevin, I said. I do that in my job, too. Oh, and what do you do for a living, Mr. Hughes? Um, I roll with the punches, Kevin. I roll with the punches. Kevin gave a little half-smile as he turned on my oxygen. Nurse Florence helped me get into bed. As she straightened out my pillows, she told me I had to exercise every day. I told her I loved to work out. I asked her what the first exercise was going to be. Florence said, I want you to try to get out of bed and sit in the chair. I looked to the chair a foot to my left and said, That chair? Yes, Mr. Hughes, that chair. Uh, What do you want me to do? Then what I want you to do is to watch television. Sit as long as you possibly can. I said, You're joking. She said, No joke. I want you to sit there at least 20 minutes three times a day. Don't be a couch potato. Florence vanished out the door. And then I understood that she was relaying information to me in hospital speak. I had always been aware of doctor speak. This is the incomprehensible way doctors talk to you. Like when my doctor, Jeff Karen, told me I had somatic awareness. I mean, who knows what that really means? I asked Jeff. He said it meant nothing, but it took him years of training to say nothing that sounded so good. Hospital speak is from the same family of languages. The purpose is for a nurse to tell you something distressing without you catching on until they have time to get out of the room. When Nurse Florence told me my exercise was to sit in the chair and watch television, she was really saying, just moving one foot to your right will be a fresh new hell for you. Sitting instead of lying down will make you cry out for mercy. Your new boot camp is going to be able to make it through Iron Chef America. I asked Anne to help me from the bed into the chair. Lord Almighty! Incredible! The pain was remarkable. For a few minutes, I thought it became the color orange. The move from the side of the bed to a standing position might as well have been rock climbing. Taking two steps to the chair was a 5K run. Sitting down in the chair was excruciating. It was more painful than watching The Matrix Reloaded. I had some disabilities I never expected. They had removed an artery from my left arm and put it in my heart. That rendered my left arm useless. There was no strength in my legs to hold up my body, let alone bend at the knee. My buttocks had become so tenderized by the operating table, I had insufficient cushion. We had a hard landing. This sent a vibration up through my body, making me feel every broken bone in my chest. I sat back in the chair and gasped for air. Now came the real test. I had to reach for the television changer. I took a breath and gathered my strength. I made a grab for it. 
The heart monitors I was plugged into were binging and blipping and sounding alarms, but I kept reaching and success. I pulled it close to me with a shaking arm. I pointed it at the television, and with absolute resolve, I pressed the button. The television came on, that beautiful, glorious light. I switched channels. I stopped on ESPN to look at some of the highlights from yesterday's games, and then I switched to the HG network to watch Design on a Dime, and then I switched to the news to see what I had missed in the world the last few days. I found it all so interesting. For the first time in weeks, I cared. Maybe Nurse Florence knew what she was talking about. I had found the next step on my road to recovery, the television changer. It doesn't give you a desire to see, but it lets you know it's possible to see something different. I don't know where life will lead me, but I know where I've been. I can't say what life will show me, but I know what I've seen. Tried my hand in love and friendship, but all that has passed and gone. This little girl is moving on. As part of my recovery, I noticed many new things about my body. I should mention I was on oxygen 24-7 and hadn't worked up the nerve to look at my incision yet. But I did borrow Anne's compact mirror to look at my face. I didn't know what to expect, but it wasn't this. I was glowing. Glowing. Maybe it was from the fluorescence in the room. Maybe it was the natural light streaming in through the window slot. I had never seen my skin look so youthful, except, of course, when I was youthful. My hair looked less gray. I wondered if something had happened to me during those four unexplainable hours in the ICU when time almost seemed to stop. While I was struggling to get from the chair to the bed, my hospital gown pulled up and I saw someone must have shaved me while I was unconscious. There were very odd, wide, bald strips running up and down my arms and legs in sort of geometric pattern. From my perspective, it looked like someone had shaved me like a show poodle. I found out that it was standard procedure to shave anywhere the surgeon may need to harvest usable veins and arteries. I lifted my gown and asked Anne how bad it was. She asked me to turn around. I could tell from her laugh it was pretty bad. She said it sort of reminded her of crop circles. The first night in the cardio ward, Anne went home to get some much-needed sleep. I did not have Jane, my ICU nurse, to watch over me. I was going to be alone for the first time since surgery. Before Florence left for the evening, she asked if there was anything I needed. I told her I just needed to have my jug of ice water and my pee bottle within reach. She handed me the emergency button. She said, keep this on you at all times. If anything happens, press the big blue button. The yellow button lowers the bed. The red button turns on the TV. I said, wow, boy, you really have to have presence of mind if you're dying. What, said Florence, feigning non-comprehension. I had forgotten that you can't joke with hospital personnel. I said, nothing. I got it. Dying, hit the big blue button. Project runway, hit the red button. Got it. The lights went out except for the glow of the five monitors that were attached to me. I got through the night almost without incident. Almost. There was a small mishap in my attempt to dock with my pee bottle. In the morning, I realized the hard truth that there is no such thing as a small mishap with a pee bottle. I debated as to whether this merited the blue button. I decided to give it a push. Nothing happened. I thought, well, that's odd. I pushed it again. Still nothing. I checked my gown and sheets to see the extent of the damage, and that's when I noticed that one of my chest tubes had leaked on my gown and my newly shaved thighs were soaked in drainage. That did it. I hadn't lived in such filth since I was a freshman in college. I rang the buzzer again. No response. Now I was getting angry. What would have happened if I were dying? Finally, I heard a voice of a new nurse over the loudspeaker in my room. Yes, Mr. Huge? You push the blue button. How can I help you? I yelled up to the invisible nurse in the sky. I'm filthy. I need to clean up. Can someone help me? I don't think I can walk to the bathroom. Pause. A voice came back. Someone will be there shortly. But her subtext said, You have misused the blue button.
About ten minutes later, a small Asian woman and a tall Russian woman, neither of whom spoke English, came into the room. "'Are you having an emergency, Mr. Huge?' I said, well, nothing like the emergencies you're used to having here, but for me, yes. I could tell they had no idea what I was saying. I continued, I spilled my pee bottle last night. I held up half a full jug of urine. They stepped back in horror. I said, also, I'm covered in blood. I lifted up my robe to show my shaved thighs covered in drainage. They gasped and made a horrible face. I said, I want to wash up. I need fresh clothes. I need to be clean. The Asian nurse nodded. Yes, Mr. Huge, I see. The Russian pole vaulter pulled me out of bed, and the two of them helped me shuffle to the bathroom. I said to the Russian, Hey, that's probably a good sign. She said, What is good sign? I said that I want to be clean. I bet if I was dying, I wouldn't care. The pole vaulter shook her head. No, not true. The dead people want to wash too. I was somewhat discouraged, but I kept shuffling into the bathroom. Before me was a terror I didn't expect. The bathroom mirror. I could see the top of my incision. The Asian nurse said, Mr. Huge, take off your robe. Don't get your incision wet. You can wash off your legs while I get you some fresh clothes. I thanked her. The pole vaulter stepped out of the bathroom to give me privacy. I took my gown off. I counted to three opened my eyes and looked in the mirror. There was my incision, from top to bottom. And you know what? It wasn't so bad. <laughs> no, yeah, I had been sliced from stem to stern, but there were no stitches. It was like they just glued me back together. I carefully washed as much of me as I could, avoiding the incision. The nurses came in with my new gown fresh from the dryer, warm, soft. It was wonderful. Anne got to the hospital around nine that morning. She asked how my night went. I told her about the blue button and the docking mishap and the pole vaulter and the return of Mr. Huge. She stared at me and stepped into the hall. She called out to a nurse and said, We're going to need a rollaway cot. I'm staying here from now on. That was my last night alone in the hospital. And I have to say I appreciated it. And I appreciate it in a way I never understood before. All of my life, I'd heard from other guys that if you wanted to have a relationship with a woman, you had to take your time, you had to lay the groundwork. And I always thought the purpose of all that groundwork was to convince someone to have sex with you. Not at all. People need very little motivation to have sex. You lay all that groundwork so that someday someone will sit with you in the emergency room. Anne turned back to me and said, You don't mind, do you? I said, Are you kidding? I'll save my display of rugged individualism for the next time we have to shop at Ikea. Kevin rolled in a sort of motel-type rollaway cot. Anne raised her eyebrows and said, Well, at least it's better than the pooch bed. That next morning, I was determined to start walking. There was a loop around the cardio ward that a normal adult could walk in about a minute. I was hoping to be back by nightfall. I disconnected my oxygen, which was a very scary moment. I disconnected myself from all of my monitors, and Anne and I set off on the long road to somewhere else. Every step I took required complete concentration. I occasionally was able to look up and take in some mental snapshots of my new world. I saw patients who were far worse off than me. I shuffled past open doors with families speaking in low tones to each other of distress and consolation. I remember those tones from sitting in the chair beside my mother when she had her first heart attack. I knew there was no comfort in those low tones, only a marker of the passing time. I saw others who were also taking their first tentative steps down the hallway. I saw one man walking that I recognized. He was from our little group of patients who checked in together at dawn four days ago. He was carefully making his way down the hallway, talking on his cell phone. I was impressed. Only one hand on the walker, able to walk and talk at the same time. I bet that was the new standard of recovery the nurses were looking for. My mind took an unexpected detour. I thought of the young woman who was ushered into surgery in our group. She wore a Vassar sweatshirt. She stood out in my mind because of her youth and because she was the only one who was alone in the waiting room. I wondered if she was here on our floor as well, and if she was still alone. 
I couldn't imagine how difficult that would be. I kept walking. I made it past the nurse's station. Several nurses waved at me in encouragement. Good work, Mr. Hughes. You keep at it. I felt with each step my heart was pounding harder and harder. I started to feel like I couldn't get a breath. I was highly motivated to get back to my oxygen. I picked up the pace. I passed the room next to mine. The door was open, and an old woman was lying in bed. Her blinds were closed. The room was dark. As I struggled past her door, she turned her head and looked at me. I paused, and our eyes met. And in that moment, we were united. I couldn't say by what. If I had to describe it, I would say it was one part struggle, one part surrender. I silently answered her by turning away and continuing on to my room. I got back to the safety of my bed and my oxygen and turned on the television. Anne kissed me and left for the day to do all of the chores and fix dinner for the children. I ended up falling asleep with the television on, which can play havoc with your dream world. Sleeping through a marathon of cupcake wars creates a completely different dream experience than sleeping through a marathon of wind-fish attack. I was awakened by the arrival of my primary physician. Jeff came in with a big smile on his face. So how are we today, Mr. Hughes? I said, I'm better, Jeff, but the Asian nurses keep calling me Mr. Huge. Jeff laughed. Mr. Huge? I said, yeah, yeah, it must be confusing spelling with the G and the H. Jeff said, either that or maybe they just think you're gigantic. Well, I said, anyway, Jeff, I feel fine except for the name thing. Jeff said, do you feel like you were hit by a truck? I nodded, yes, either that or a train, or maybe just a car pulling a U-Haul, but it was something big on wheels. Well, that's normal, Jeff said. He looked at all the monitors and all my lab results. He said, you're doing fine. When you heal from the surgery, you will have the heart of a 20-year-old, but you have to keep it that way. You have to get serious about keeping the cholesterol down. I said, I know. I will. Jeff stood at the foot of my bed and said, do you want to hear a scary story? Sure, I said. Nothing could scare me at this point. Jeff continued, your surgeon, Dr. Cass, said when he opened you up, your heart was black. It was black. I shook my head. What does that mean, Jeff? He said, it means your heart didn't have any oxygen. He said that when they finished the bypass and started you up again, they could see your heart turning pink with all of the new circulation. You may be the luckiest man on the floor. I said, maybe. But this morning I saw a guy who had cell phone reception. Jeff was shocked. In here? Wow. I wonder who his carrier is. So tell me, Mr. Hughes, you want to talk about sex? I said, what is it about me that made you think I was in the mood? The shaved thighs? Jeff laughed and said, well, it's just the number one question. I see. So you're just going down the list? Right, Jeff said. It was just an educated guess based on experience and probability. And it makes sense. Why go through all this trouble to stay alive and not think about all the things that make life worth living? True, I said. Jeff held up two fingers. I stared at them and said, Two? Jeff nodded. Two. You have to be able to climb two flights of stairs without stopping. When you do that, you will be officially fit enough to have sex. I said, does it matter how big the staircases are? Jeff made a face and started for the door. I think we caught this just in time. Get some rest. I'll see you later, Mr. Huge. That evening, I was watching college football when Ann came back with some slippers, a bathrobe, and an unexpected visitor, my oldest son, Robert. Robert pulled the chair to the side of the bed and sat down, and his face broke into a huge grin that immediately made me feel wonderful. He donned his well-practiced sarcasm. So, you living it up in here, Pop? I said, how could I not? They're having trouble keeping me down. Yes, he said. I see you have a window and a TV changer. Party Central. I asked, how have you been? Robert laughed and said, you mean since you saw me four days ago? I said, sure, that'll do. Robert stretched and said, well, Papa, I have been doing better than you. Are you feeling all right? I said, not bad. The worst thing is, my tears burn. Robert said, what do you mean? I said, yeah, I know it's strange. I'm not being poetic. 
but it feels like twice a day someone switches my Visine with contact lens cleaning solution. It just burns. It's hard for me to see. Ooh, Robert said, that sounds nasty. What medicines are you taking? I said, I'm taking everything. He said, well, that's probably it. Uh, how's the scar? Well, that's a surprise, I said. It's not as bad as I thought it would be. Robert inched forward. Can I see it? Sure, I said. I pulled my gown down in front. Robert peeked in and made a face. Impressive. Yeah, I said. People used to get tattooed before they went into battle. Today, I think people get tattooed to pretend they had a battle to go to. This will be my tattoo. Robert raised his eyebrows. Be careful. You're getting trendy, Dad. Well, I'll leave you two to enjoy the evening. Frankly, this place gives me the willies. When do you think you'll come home? I said, hopefully in another three or four days. He came over and gently hugged me and said, Be well. And he was gone. Side note. I asked Robert recently about his visit to the hospital that night. He said he was nervous to visit me. He said he didn't know what to expect. He had visions I would be unconscious and hooked up to horrible machines. He missed that by a couple of days. But he said once he saw me sitting there with a TV changer, he knew I was going to be all right. That night, I had a very peaceful sleep, due in part to the fact that I could see Anne curled up on the cot beside me. I had a very specific dream. It recalled a real event from my childhood. I was probably nine or ten. It was a Sunday afternoon after Sunday school. My mother and I had just watched a Henry movie, which is what my mother used to call gladiator movies, for reasons that are too incomprehensible to go into right now. After the movie, I ran outside into the front yard. I remember the day was perfect. The sun was warm, the air was cool. I lay down in the grass. Mom walked out and sat beside me and started rubbing my back. She said, What are you doing, Steppy Doors? I said, It's just a beautiful day. Mom smiled and said, I want you to remember this moment. You have a real gift. You understand that there is such a thing as a beautiful day. If you remember that, you'll always be happy. My dream was so vivid. I felt like I was a child again. I woke up. It was the middle of the night. It was time for me to take more pain medicine. I tried to get back to that place in the front yard with my mother, but it had passed. I wasn't sad, though. I felt lucky. Just a dream of Mom and that day again meant that they were still with me in some real way. They were just waiting for the right time to return. That morning, I was up. I was ready to walk. I increased the size of my loop, going all the way down to the elevators. On my way back, I was coming up to the room next to mine, the room where I saw the old woman yesterday. The room was empty. The bed was made. There was no trace of her. I stopped at the nursing station and said, Excuse me. Kevin was on duty. He said, Yes, Mr. Hughes? Uh, the woman who was here in this room yesterday? Kevin's positive face darkened and he shook his head. I said, she died? Kevin said, just after midnight. I leaned in and asked, you see people here all of the time. They're all pretty bad off. Do you get a feeling about who will make it and who won't? Kevin was uncommitted, but a pretty young nurse beside him said, yes, absolutely. I said, well, how can you tell if someone's going to die? She said, the sure sign is when they talk to Jesus. Kevin nodded and said, yeah, that's bad. Talking to Jesus, very bad. Another nurse was passing by, heard the conversation, and joined in. Yep, talking to Jesus usually means they only have a few minutes left. The second worst sign is when they see their mothers. The pretty nurse nodded yes. Seeing their mother and talking to Jesus is the worst. I went cold. I said, um, I just had a dream about my mother, and she talked to me in the dream. Does that count? The nurses paused to consider this. Kevin said, you were asleep, right? I nodded, yeah. The nurses then all agreed, no, no, doesn't count. You have to be awake and see her. Oh, I breathed a sigh of relief. Yeah, said one nurse. You're doing very well out of your group. I said, you mean the group of us that checked in four days ago? Kevin nodded and said, yes, all the patients are organized by groups when you check in. That way we can keep the right amount of beds and nurses. You are doing very good. Good, I said. How do you mean? 
Kevin said, well, not everyone in your group made it. I said, really? Kevin's face grew dark again as he shook his head. I said, wow, really? Well, well, I guess I could understand that. Most of the people in my group are ancient compared to me. A young nurse said, oh, that doesn't matter. Things happen. There was one young girl in your group. She was a lot younger than you. She didn't make it. I felt my heart beating hard in my chest. I said, what are you talking about? The young nurse said, there was a girl in your group in her late 20s. I said, yes, yes, I know. She, she had a college sweatshirt on. She went to Vassar. The nurses were silent. Kevin said, that's the one. Oh, no, I said. I can't believe this. She was all alone when she checked in. Yes, said a young nurse. She was here for a double kidney transplant. The surgery didn't go well. I said, did anyone ever come for her? Search me, said the young nurse. Kevin says it happens. The surgeries are serious. The people are very sick. I said, I remember she was doing yoga in her chair before we were called back. I saw her laughing with her doctor right before they put her under. There was a moment when no one knew what to say. And then the young nurse added, be careful at 5 a.m. That's when people seem to die the most, between 5 and 6, just before sunrise. I nodded and said, thanks for the tip. I'm heading back for my oxygen. Kevin smiled and said, see you later, Mr. Hughes. Sorry for the bad news. It's all right, Kevin, I said. This place is built on bad news. I got back to my room. I grabbed my oxygen and jammed it in my nose. I climbed to my horrible bed and turned on the television. It was Holmes on Holmes. He was tearing down yet another substandard Canadian house. And I began to cry. I'm not sure if it was the medication or the thought of a girl I never knew. But I sat alone in my room with burning tears filling my eyes. I wiped them away with my hospital gown and washed my face with my precious ice water. I gasped for air as I remembered what I could of her. I had no idea who she was or where she came from, but her life mattered to me. Maybe that's the story. Maybe she didn't know that someone was sitting in the chair beside her. She couldn't see me, but I was there just the same along with countless others, I'm sure. Perhaps that's the definition of faith, the awareness that someone is sitting in the chair by your side. The effect that faith has on your life depends on who you think is in the chair. Anne came back from an expedition to Starbucks in another part of the hospital complex. The trip had all the excitement and danger normally reserved for space travel. She returned with a glow of success about her that only a non-fat latte could bring. Nurse Florence came in and said, Mr. Hughes, later today you'll have a shower. Florence turned and headed for the door. It was hospital speak. I caught it right off the bat. I was so proud of myself. I stopped her before she could make her get away. Florence? She turned. Yes? Florence? Uh, this shower you speak of? Yes. Is this a normal shower? Or is it something someone like me might find unpleasant? Florence rocked on her heels and said, Probably unpleasant. Florence, I said, is this going to hurt? Stripped of hospital speak, Florence leveled with me. It depends on your threshold for pain, but it will be unpleasant. Thank you, Florence, for the warning. It's much appreciated. Yes, Mr. Hughes. Florence left. Just as she left, a strange man stuck his head in the door. A Mr. Hughes? Yes, I said. You requested to see a rabbi? Wow! I did! I forgot! That was days ago! The man came in and smiled. Well, we get very busy. I'm sure, I'm sure. I'm sorry, please come in, Rabbi, please come in. The Rabbi grabbed hold of my chair. May I? I gestured, please, make yourself comfortable. He pulled the chair a suitable distance away from me in case I was contagious and sat down. He was a handsome older man with gray hair and a trimmed beard. He carried a prayer book. He smiled at me. I smiled at him. And then I realized I had nothing to say, so I made something up. I said, I imagine you see a lot of people in a day who are in bad shape like me. The rabbi laughed and said, well, I don't know how bad a shape you're in, but I see a lot of very sick people, people who've had major surgeries. They told me you just had a triple bypass? Yes, Rabbi, a double, triple, quadruple, who's counting? He said, how are you feeling? 
I said, physically, I think I'm where I should be. He said, they tell me it's a lot like being hit by a bus. I said, it's more like being hit by a streetcar, but one of those big horse-drawn streetcars. But I'm pleased to say I feel very good. Thanks to the pharmacy downstairs, I have no pain as long as I don't move too quickly for the TV changer. But mentally, though, I don't feel right. The rabbi got concerned and said, It's quite common for this operation to lead to depression. Make sure you talk to someone if you're feeling overwhelmed or suicidal. Overwhelmed, yes, I said. Suicidal, no. I actually feel quite hopeful. My frustration comes from the fact that I'm just not sure what I was supposed to learn from all of this. Rabbi furrowed his brow and asked, What do you mean? Well, I answered, Experience has taught me that there's always been a lesson in catastrophes I've gone through. I had a broken neck two years ago, learned a lot. But for the life of me, I can't figure this one out. I have no idea what I was supposed to understand from this, except maybe I ate too many French fries. The rabbi said, well, maybe that's all there is. Maybe there doesn't have to be a lesson. It's enough that you're alive. And I thought of a girl from Vassar and was unexpectedly hit by a wave of loss. I gathered my thoughts and continued, Rabbi, I would hate to think that's true. Let me ask you something. Yes, he said. You see a lot of people like me. Yes, he said. How would you describe them? The rabbi thought for a little bit. They are afraid. Yes, generally I would say the people I meet are filled with fear. I said, that's interesting because I haven't been. Not really. I mean, days before the surgery, I was scared. But then suddenly, the night before I was calm, when I realized it was none of my business, the rabbi asked, what wasn't your business? I said, whether I lived or died. It was more the surgeon's business. I, of course, was concerned for my wife, my children, but I really wasn't afraid of anything. It was out of my control. When you talk to the people who are afraid, what do you say? The rabbi leaned in and said, I usually read a psalm. I said, which one? The rabbi patted his prayer book and said, the 23rd psalm is usually what people get comfort from. I said, the Lord is my shepherd? Yes, said the rabbi. It's one of the shortest psalms, but certainly one of the most powerful. I said, I would think that walking through the valley of the shadow of death part would not be very comforting in a hospital. The rabbi looked sadly and then broke into a knowing smile. You would be surprised, he said. Rabbi, what comforts you when you're afraid? He looked at me with a sort of amused bewilderment. What, well, what do you mean? I said, when you wake up in the middle of the night, or when you feel like you're lost, what do you do? Do you read the 23rd Psalm? He smiled and said, you know, Mr. Hughes, no one has ever asked me that question before. I'll have to think about it. But what gives you comfort? What gives you comfort now? In here, what keeps you from being afraid? I was stumped. I opened my mouth to speak, unsure of what would come out, and I said, No horizon. That, that is what gives me comfort. The rabbi said, I don't understand. I laughed and said, I don't either. Let me try to explain. My whole life, I've looked for that point on the horizon, a point in the distance that I was headed toward. If there was a disaster, if there was someone trying to get in my way, I would just keep fixed on that point and say to myself, I am still on course. I know where I'm going. Not anymore, Rabbi. I let that go. The Rabbi got a concerned look on his face. I tried to reassure him, no, 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 this is a good thing. I have no horizon. I want no horizon. I have no expectations because time, time I suddenly stopped, and tiny pieces of an intricate puzzle started falling together. The rabbi must have thought I was having a small stroke because he raised his voice a little bit and said, Mr. Hughes, are you all right? I said, yes, yes, I'm fine. I was saying, I have no horizon. I want no horizon because time doesn't matter to me anymore. I tried to get a hold of my ideas before they ran away. The rabbi leaned forward. I opened my mouth, again unsure of what would come out. Rabbi. Something happened to me in the ICU. Something I can't explain. Time stopped. Just for a while. 
and then it slowly started up again. But for about four hours, I was disconnected from time. I had never experienced anything like it. It was, it was different than, let's say, going to play poker and suddenly it's dawn. This was the opposite. Say you went to play poker and you played all night and then you looked at your watch and it was the same time as when you got there. The rabbi digested this. I would think that would be strange. Yes, rabbi, you're right. It was strange. It was very strange. I couldn't have gotten through those four hours looking for a horizon. It was useless. I couldn't look out. I had to look in. The rabbi sat back and said, Well, that's sounding like it makes sense. But now you aren't in such crisis. How do you feel about time now? I thought for a moment and said, I think I've been changed. You know, this may be what I was supposed to learn. I saw that the past is gone. It doesn't exist anymore. Except, as I remember it, the people, the places, my mother, the pooch, Bob, all gone. And the future is promised to no one. You just take one lap around the cardio ward here if you don't believe that. The rabbi said, so all we're left with is the present. The only thing exists is now. I shook my head. No, rabbi. That's the point. We don't even have now. Now vanishes before we even know it. The rabbi laughed and said, then what's left, Mr. Hughes? I looked at the rabbi and finally understood something. Rabbi, the only thing we have left is the next moment. You can do whatever you want to do in the next moment, but there are only two things you can do that matter. You could tell someone you love them, or you could try to undo a regret from the past, but that's it. In the end, that's all that's going to matter anyway. The rabbi sat for a moment and said, Well, I'll think on that. This moment has already gone by too fast. I need to be going. It was a pleasure meeting you, Mr. Hughes. Rest peacefully. I hope you're able to go home soon. So do I, rabbi. And, and thank you for dropping by, and I'm going to read the 23rd Psalm again. Thank you. When the rabbi left, I asked Anne to pass me the prayer book I brought with me. I found the 23rd Psalm. I tried to read it out loud, but I couldn't. It suddenly meant too much to me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green meadows. Beside tranquil waters, he leads me. He restores my soul. Wait, wait. That was a line I never heard before. He restores my soul. God is there to heal your soul, not your body. For that, you need doctors and hospitals. You need exercise and to take care of yourself. It's a partnership. If the partnership is successful, you will be able to fear no evil, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Sounds like a deal to me. Fade out. Fade in. It has been six months since my surgery. Six months since I joked with the nurse who was a big fan of Deadwood. Six months since I talked to the rabbi about the importance of having no horizon. It's been three and a half months since I was able to climb two flights of stairs. Actually, that happened by accident. I went to the hospital to go to my cardiac recovery program, and the elevator was broken. I was hiking up the emergency stairway with Anne, complaining all the way about how the hospital was subjecting heart patients to the worst elevator system in the world. Anne looked over at me and said, What floor is the cardio office on? I muttered, The seventh. Anne got a coquettish little smile and said, Hmm, seven flights of stairs. It hit me like a ton of bricks. I said, Fourteen, if you count the climb down. We laughed the rest of the way. <laughs> In the last six months, I've lost 25 pounds. I've switched to a diet that's similar to what I feed my rabbits. That's all right with me. I like green food. I have a pillbox that's so big it qualifies as carry-on luggage. The biggest surprise I had was when my surgeon, Dr. Cass, said he wanted me drinking alcohol when I went home. I said, really? He said, yep. And it doesn't matter if it's wine or beer or whiskey, just drink. Two drinks a day should be good. It keeps the arteries flexible. I was in heaven. The only thing that could have made me happier was if he also prescribed an occasional bag of Fritos. The doctors told me that part of my long-term recovery is walking. Every day. The walk rebuilds the heart. Each walk is supposed to be longer than the last. I recognized the formula as being similar to the one I accidentally stumbled on with the pooch. 
I knew a walk every day has a curative power, as was displayed in her long, long, highly undisciplined life. When I got home from the hospital, Anne and I took our first shaky walk to the corner and back. It was about 500 feet, took about 20 minutes. Now we can walk four miles with ease. I'm usually up and dressed before Anne, and I often take my first walk of the day alone. I've discovered I'm partial to morning light. I know there's always been a sort of romantic prejudice toward sunsets. It's understandable. All of those colors fading to black give you a sense of beauty of the passing of time. But I'm not a romantic anymore. There's something encouraging about the light at the beginning of the day. I look forward to the usual sights and sounds of our neighborhood at sunrise. There's the ongoing war between the cats and the squirrels. I'm not sure who's winning, but it doesn't look like there's any end in sight. There's the old tree down the street that's constantly falling apart. It always seems to be dropping massive branches onto some unfortunate car that was parked there by a driver who wasn't in the know. There are the three bluebirds that seem to follow me around the walking path at the park. There's the house with all the beautiful roses and the house with the mystery lawn that's always perfect. I suspect invisible gardeners working at midnight. And then there are my nameless confederates. Other walkers, mostly older men and women, some who've suffered a stroke and are dragging a foot behind them, some with walkers who I suspect had the same surgery as I, all of them walking the same morning paths with a certain determination that I've come to recognize. This morning there was someone new walking around the track at the park. It was a young woman wearing a college sweatshirt. I stopped. I had to look twice. For a moment I thought it was a sign that my unknown companion was silently watching out for me. And then I thought it could just be a sign that I was still watching out for her. I finished the circuit and came back to our house. Anne was in her nightgown making breakfast for the boys. She asked, How was the walk? I said it was fine. I watched as she poured pancake batter onto the griddle. She smiled with delight when she asked, Did you see the bluebirds? I said, I saw two of them. Anne stopped and took a sip of her tea. Well, maybe the other one has flown off to start a new nest of her own. I was happy at the thought of an expanding bluebird population. Anne said, I boiled water for tea if you want some. Anne turned to get a cup from the cabinet without waiting for my answer. Sure, I said, tea would be lovely. Anne handed the cup to me. I dunked my decaffeinated tea bag. I watched her as she flipped the hotcakes and said, Anne? She stopped and turned toward me. Yes? I gestured with my teacup. Thank you. She smiled. It was nothing. And then her smile vanished. She walked over and hugged me and said, It was nothing at all. Time is curious. It vanishes. Every day we look back and wonder where it went. There seems to be no visible evidence of our passing this way. No bridges that were built, no symphonies written. When I look back, the path itself seems undisturbed. To this point, I had measured my life by how much effect I had had on the world. I think that maybe that's a common mistake. I think a more accurate measure of a life may be the effect the world has had on us. As Anne moved quietly through the kitchen, I realized to my surprise, that the long road to somewhere else was only leading me to the next moment. For now, it was a place I called home. That was The Long Road to Somewhere Else, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowski, and you're listening to The Tobolowski Files. Stephen, you want to tell people where they can find more of your work on the internet this week? Yes, if they'd like, uh, you can go to stephentobolowski.com, and you'll be able to read Cautionary Tales. That's a story I wrote for Kindle. And also, in general, just go to tobolowskifiles.com, and there you'll find all of the Tobolowski Files, plus 
uh, Twitter and Facebook and my email in case you want to write any comments. Yes, and I'd strongly recommend Facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowsky to stay abreast of our live shows of the Tobolowsky Files. Thank you guys for listening to this week's episode. We'll see you later. Adios. Adios.